Shane, I just want you to know. I see you. Oh my god, I never want to roleplay with you again. <laughs> Different kind of roleplay. <laughs> Every game you're exposing yourself. Every game. Put, put your pants back on. Are we not LARPing? <laughs> Live from the dangerous Neolithic cave in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 79 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about creating character backgrounds. But first, the party chats up a priest in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the Chevalier promises not to say Milady in the Character Creation Forge. So... Not too long ago, friend of the show, James Intracasso, interviewed Mike Merles, who is not yet a friend of the show. Uh, yeah. Someday friend of the show, potentially. Potentially. It's possible. Potential new friend. PNF. But one of the things that Merles mentioned is that all of these Unearthed Arcana supplements that have been coming out recently are going to be fodder for a new player-focused book. Oh, okay. So uh, three years, three books a year. Yeah, okay. Cool. Finally, we get one. Yeah. He also made clear that right now the uh, Wizards of the Coast's pattern for D&D is that they are putting out three books a year. That's probably a player book, uh, an adventure, and then some other type of supplement. Right, which is almost always an adventure. (laughs) Yeah. But now we know that on April 4th, we're going to get a new book, Tales from the Yawning Portal, which is, well, they're 5e conversions of old classic modules. Yeah, so there are seven modules included, seven adventures. Some of our favorites, actually. Yeah, so Against the Giants, a uh, old first edition module that is probably one of the best received of all time. Yeah. Dead in Thay, we're getting Forge of Fury. I remember Dead in Thay was a thing. I don't know much about it. Forge of Fury, we mm, incorrectly identified as an Eberron adventure. Right. So That's nope. the Forgotten Forge. <laughs> yeah, whoops. <laughs> uh, never heard of Hidden Shrine of Tamawachin. I, I, I don't know anything about that one. But the end of this list is super great. Sunless Citadel, my favorite module of all time, starring Meepo the Cobbled. Tomb of Horrors, the worst adventure of all time, starring <laughs> your characters dying, multiple unrepentant deaths, and White Plume Mountain, another classic adventure, kind of on par with Against the Giants. I'm happy to see all of these back. We'll get to play them. So much nostalgia. There'll be tears everywhere. That's great. Yeah. I'm most interested to see what the conversions look like because, for example, Sunless Citadel has my least favorite magic item in all of third edition, Shatter Spike. Shatter Spike was bad. <laughs> Stupid. What, was it a sword? What, what was it? Uh, a mace or something? A uh, Morningstar? Cudgels? Yeah, I think something like that. That it sundered other magic items. Yep. So that you couldn't loot them. Yep. It was the worst. It was the best. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't good, but it was the best. But from what we've seen from previous 5e conversions, I have a feeling we're going to see a magic item that destroys magic items yeah well th- that's why they're so rare in 5e <laughs> there's a shatter spike yeah <laughs> this is a post sunless citadel economy my friend <laughs> i think this might be the only canon way thus far to really destroy magic items yeah like permanently uh well except for the legendary artifacts 
right? Oh, All right. of them have uh-huh. some way of triggering their destruction, but it's like, you know, drop it in a volcano and, and hit it with this particular hammer in this particular forge or right. something. I think DMG says that reg- regular normal magic items actually have resistance to damage and they're like hard to destroy. So I think if you're like really dedicated, you can take care of it. But Shatter Spike was an artifact, wasn't it? And it could... Oh, I don't think it was an no, artifact. No, it wasn't like plus four. I guess it wasn't technically an artifact. It was like a plus four, whatever it was, cudgel. Was it that oh, good? It gave you improved sunder. Was it just plus one? Maybe it sucked. Well, it sucked. It sucked. You just it, didn't like it directionally. <laughs> yes, that is correct. Meepo was fine. I'll also be really interested to see what Tomb of Horrors looks like. I have a feeling it's going to be just as randomly deadly. And we have talked before about how Tomb of Horrors is a bad, bad module. So Tomb of Horrors is also really interesting because I'm curious which Tomb of Horrors they're going to actually build this off of. Mm. Because there's been a lot of work within the OSR community to recreate Tomb of Horrors in a way that's a lot less arbitrary and a little more logical and fair. I mean, if they're building it like they converted caves of chaos they're basically just going to like adjust the dcs and have everything be the same I, I mean probably but that module specifically could be problematic because it is a it is designed as a puzzle uh and one which does not play fair like it, it's a tournament module to test how well you play D, not a story the way that other modules are right how well you metagame D, right you know did you use your 10 foot pole in the right way and were you lucky enough not to put your hand in the wrong place did you test every five foot square? Because if you didn't, you're dead. Also, did you fall in that pit trap? Because if you didn't, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shatter Spike, by the way, was just a plus one longsword. Longsword? Longsword. Uh, it got plus four to the attack roll to sunder a weapon. I see. Did yeah. it give you the improved sunder feat? Uh, no. You needed the sunder feat to gain the big benefit from it. I see. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, and it could damage weapons up to plus four. I think that's what you're thinking ah, of. I see. Yeah. My worry with Tomb of Horrors is that it is going to sort of give the green light to people who either haven't played D&D before or Grognard's waiting for the old ways to return to say, yeah, arbitrary death and random traps are the way to go to make a good story so people will have fun. Like, the introduction to Tomb of Horrors in this book should actually just be the 1d4chan page (laughs) right like explaining how garbage arbitrary this module is Mm -hmm. and how you can still have fun with it and that's fine right like expect to die a lot i mean if they had uh, a lengthy gray box sidebar like explaining like the history of the module and like how to use it properly and not just screw people over and like this is not how you're normally supposed to play all your campaigns right i think that would be super interesting because it's definitely like if you've got high-level characters who have ways around things like this and they know that they're walking into something that was supposed to be like created as like a death trap, mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Like, you know, the Joker built this. Yeah, I mean, bring your divination wizard, right? Because yeah. otherwise you'll never get in. Wheel, whoa. It, it, I got whoa again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think like the first time Tomb of Horrors was run, if I recall, like most groups didn't even make it into the tomb. You can just not find the door or find the wrong door and die. <laughs> <laughs> So if that's coming out in April, that means we've got two more books coming out this year, one of which is going to be a player supplement. I don't think Yawning Portal is going to make much of a season for Adventurers League. 
So I think they're going to need a faster reset on the Adventures League cycle, and I think that'll come earlier rather than later. Like I could see some of these modules making it to Adventures League, but not the whole book. So I think they're going to need another adventure soon. So when the adventure be in summer, and then that would put the player's book in November. I agree with you. Yeah, because Skag, I think, came out October. Folo's Guide came out October, November. So Right around there. So that gives them time to fix... Well, the monk was terrible. The artificer was terrible. Well, look, they restarted the alphabetical order on the <laughs> Unearthed Arcana releases. So maybe after, as of our recording, Artificer was the last one released. So we don't know what's coming next, but could be Barbarian. Could be. I want to see Mystic. And then Ranger. Yeah, Ranger again. Uh, yeah, we should probably get a Ranger now so that we have time to revise it two or three more times. Yeah. All right. So Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the party are in the prologue of our rogue trader game using the dark heresy second edition rule set by fantasy flight games uh, they have been sent to investigate a late tithe on the planet of nova bella a agro world that is 20 years behind on the rations that it was supposed to distribute to the imperium they arrived promptly on the planet delivered by a rogue trader and proceeded to murder a mm, heretic, in scare quotes, uh, Viceroy, who was probably the only competent person on the planet they would soon come to realize. You know, if it had turned out that actually he was the heretic, then it would have been fine, right? The Inquisition is very (laughs) results-oriented. That's true, actually, yeah. (laughs) You know, if you got the shot in the dark, no one would have asked questions. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, um, it turns out the people of Nova Bella didn't take too kindly to that. Uh, you were surrounded inside the administratum building, held up at gunpoint, granted an audience then with the governor, who proved to be the viceroy's brother. Whoops. Yeah. Ended up making a deal with the governor, Governor Cathrinkus, who you determined to be skimming off the top for uh, his own personal enrichment, but otherwise not truly corrupt, not a heretic. Yeah, small C corrupt. Yeah. Greasy palms. Right. Uh, which made him, given that you had killed his brother whom he admitted was the competent one, uh, made him the next most useful person on the planet. So, you made a deal. What was your deal? He wouldn't kill us. Good start. Mm -hmm. We liked that. He would increase production of the tithe because they hadn't been able to ship it off world, so it apparently had just been sitting in grain warehouses for 20 years rotting. Well, like like storage silos, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're going to crank up production. That's good. That's why we're here. Uh, but in order to get all of this moving, we have to go talk to the Agri-Harvest Sodality, who doesn't get along too well with the governor. No. So the Agri-Harvest Sodality it basically controls manufacturing. Um, they're responsible for planting, harvesting, and processing all of the grain stuffs. So fine. We'll run some fetch quests. We'll fix this. And then we'll get off this awful world. But on the way, you decided to make a stop at an old familiar place, something that you had seen when you first came in and promptly ran away from. The cathedral. The Grand Cathedral, yes. Yeah, we're uninterested in this weird abomination of the worship of the God Emperor of Mankind. Yeah, so the Imperial Creed, the worship of the God Emperor of Mankind, is uh, adapted locally in most planets. Mm -hmm. And here on this planet, it was used with a lot of harvest imagery as a way to justify their very, very harsh existence. This is a very low-tech world. It's kind of like an Amish level of technology. 
you found out they work 364 days a year. They get one day off for the Harvest Festival, which is upcoming, and that's it. And they're about to get hit pretty hard, too, because in order to ramp up production, it means less food for the citizens of Novabella. Yeah, but it means more food for the Imperial Guard, so that's important. Right. And the key is that the Harvester Prelate, the, the head of the Ministorum, the head of the church, kind of keeps the workers focused. You know, uh, what they do is driven by the agri-harvest sodality, but keeping them motivated to do it, that's the job of the priests. An opiate for the masses, if you will. Uh, indeed. I say as me, not as my PC. Nope, doesn't matter. 1d3 <laughs> corruption. <laughs> or is it insanity? Chaos is the metagame. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that you went and stopped off at the Grand Cathedral was that uh, you had been working on decrypting a journal that you had found in the Viceroy's office. If you recall, that journal was uh, written by a harvester prelate who um, had died previously, but had initially written to the Inquisition to warn them of growing heresy on the planet and asking them for help. You saw something in there that kind of bared a question. Yeah, in a galaxy where reason and science lead to corruption and chaos, we saw something that piqued our interest. Apparently, the priests use divinations to basically ask the god emperor what they're supposed to plant every year. It doesn't really matter what would make sense to plant, right? There's grain, there's flowers, there's crop rotation, but it doesn't necessarily follow a pattern. It's whatever the divinations say to plant. Yeah. And then the agri-harvest sodality plants those things. But this journal said that the sodality was planting whatever they wanted, not necessarily what the priests said, the divinations said. Yeah, so in a year where the priests might have said plant 90% flowers, that's what the god emperor wants. And you've got to make your tithe with the other 10% of grain that you've planted, and that won't feed your workers it's going to lead to a lot of death and unrest and unhappiness and starvation, which aren't good things. And logically for us, we would say, oh, yeah, you shouldn't do that. But this is the Imperium. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Improvising leads to chaos. So at this point, we knew we needed to go to the Sodality and figure out why was it that they weren't following the priests? Is it because the priests are corrupt in some manner or is it because the Sodality is corrupt? Because somebody in this mess is corrupt oh yeah someone's getting purged <laughs> <laughs> and we've already proved that we don't really care who it is right so you went and spoke to the priests the harvester prelate barahona was his name and he had finished conducting the worship of the hour and he basically laid down the law as it would have been laid down in medieval europe look we make these divinations and we plan what the divinations say and if that means people starve, it's because the god emperor is teaching us a lesson. Right. And then you were like, so do you think maybe the agri-harvest sodality isn't following it? And Barahona's like, oh, no, no, absolutely not. They would never do that. Uh, there's certainly no corruption on this planet. They are faithful followers of the harvest. Uh, they would never do that. In direct contradiction to what this secret journal we have says. Yeah, what his predecessor said, actually. So let's go check out the sodality. Yeah, figure out, is this guy lying, or is he an idiot? Either way, I think he's getting purged. <laughs> <laughs> so, you dig into the data. And we'll find out what we found next week. Alright, so this week we're going to talk about character backgrounds. And these are 
all the things that you define about your character before they appear in the game. So this is like family, home, career, any important life events that happen to you, those types of things. You mean all the boring stuff that you insist that we write? Oh, not me. No? Have I ever insisted you write that? <laughs> Tell me about the uh, the backstory of Friends Job, will you? Oh, he was great. He was basically Harlan Nail, but with more hair. Okay. Yeah, great backstory. Yeah. <laughs> you, you referenced another character, uh, determined his hairstyle. Mm-hmm. It gave me nothing to work on. Well, it was one shot. <laughs> right. would, you, would you like four pages for one shot? Yes. <laughs> no, don't do that. No, don't do that. Uh, but that does bring up kind of two approaches, right? And I think these are more of a spectrum than just two mutually exclusive ones. But right. there's sort of the extensive approach to building your backstory, and then there's the emergent approach. So extensive is like, like you said, the four-page backstory, you know, thoroughly defining your background, uh, putting all the details in place that tie the character into the world. Yeah, it's the backstory, right? right? Here is my prose about what my character did before, where they were born, and the tragedy that led them to be an adventurer. Exactly. Then emergent is more like broad strokes of a background, where the details will be fleshed out as the campaign or the player evolve. Here's who I am and how I feel. Right. We'll get into the details. We'll figure all that out once we see who else is in the party, where we are. Like, I don't necessarily know what country we're in, you yeah. know, because we'll deal with that in session zero. Yeah. So it, it's kind of like uh, I, I've got a concept for my character. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have a, a, a route to place that character. And then, like I said, in practice, you're probably somewhere in between, right? Mm-hmm. You you might define some details and leave others undefined on some sliding scale between the two. So what are the main benefits of using an extensive background? Well, I mean, creativity, right? As a player, you get to define all these things and make them up yourself. Yeah, I actually like writing the short story backstory. Yeah, I've, I've written the vignette or two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think my most recent one is sitting on mundangerous.com, actually. Oh. It's the gambler, if you recall, uh, Rasputin, the halfling gambler. I always thought Rasputin would be taller. I think Rasputin was super short and shady, right? Maybe that's why he didn't die when he got shot. It just went over his head. <laughs> yeah, that, that must have been it. <laughs> it also makes things easier for the GM if you've got an extensive background because you share the load for world building. You know, the information and the characters and the places that you put in your backstory are things that the GM can draw on and then use in their own story without having to make them up on their own. Yeah, this is especially nice if you're in a homebrew kind of setting Mm -hmm. or uh, even in a published setting where the GM doesn't have, like, full mastery of the setting. It's like, great, you know all about that place. Tell me about it. Yeah, or even in a place like Forgotten Realms, like, I'm from Daggerford. You know, great. Okay, I'm running Forgotten Realms. I know everything about Forgotten Realms, but it doesn't mean that every alley is defined. You give me that information. Right. And then when you challenge a player to do that, you also necessarily increase their buy-in into the setting and, and into the game, right? They're they're putting some skin in the game up front. Both like emotional energy, but also I spent a lot of time writing this, and so I'd really like if you read it and like cared about it and then referenced it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also like, I put some toys into the sandbox. Like, I would like to play with them. Mm-hmm. Of course, I think we've all been in games where there is the person who makes the very intricate backstory, and that backfires. Yeah, there's 
some problems that can emerge from, from having an extensive background. First and foremost for me, you can end up with characters that prove difficult to roleplay at the table. Yeah, if you have a backstory that is multiple pages long, you probably did a lot. And if you're starting at first level, it's hard to figure out how you were able to do that much stuff. That's like the the Mary Sue background story, right? It's like, man, this guy has been through so much. How is he only a level one dirt farmer? (laughs) He single-handedly won a war as a level one fighter. You've had so much success. Why is it that you only have gear worth, I don't know, approximately 100 gold pieces? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Fell on hard times. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, I think that can be a challenge. I think also the personality that you put into a backstory might be more difficult to convey at the table than it is to convey via prose, right? So, uh, for example, the the witty, sarcastic, rakish rogue is one of the hardest characters to play at a table because you can often be distracting. Or, you know, a lot of times players aren't as witty with their quips as they are when they've got time to write their prose. Really? Uh, yes, I've learned this myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, So that's like your character concept doesn't survive first contact with you, the player. And if you've built a huge backstory around that, that can make for extra complication. It also focuses the player on what has happened in the past, which probably doesn't involve any of the other players, rather than the future and what the party is going to do and what the goals of the game are. Yeah, and nothing bums players out more than writing that huge backstory and then finding out that none of it mattered. Yeah. You know, like... (laughs) Oh, cool. I wrote all about my homeland and we never went there and they never came to us. <laughs> That's on the other side of the ocean. So, yeah. oh, well, right. I didn't want to be a stranger in a strange land. I wanted to be in my land. <laughs> so let's compare that then to the emergent background. It's broad strokes. You don't have a ton of details. You're going to figure it out as you go along. Well, it's definitely a lower barrier to entry. Yeah, you can just show up with like a good idea. Yeah. And then it also lets the backstory of your character kind of emerge to suit the PC that you're playing. So if it can be difficult to live up to your backstory, if it's very extensive, um, this allows you to tailor your backstory to the way that you're actually playing your character. In the same way that we talk sometimes about fiction writers kind of not knowing what their characters are going to do next as they're writing them, you can kind of work into that as a role player too, right? You you start to think like your character and start to act like your character. And then it's like, okay, cool. So I know how I approach situations. Let me go figure out why I do that, right? Let me write the backstory that fits how I behave today. Yeah, it also prevents the situation where you've written like a loner character, but you, your personality is to make quips at the table. Yeah. <laughs> and now you've got the brooding loner who is constantly cracking jokes. Yeah. Well, that's why he's brooding and alone, because nobody appreciates his jokes. Because <laughs> it's much harder to write them at the table. Yeah, true. <laughs> I also really like that it allows players during session zero to incorporate other people's backstories. You know, So what happens a lot at our table is two people will decide, hey, actually, we know each other. You know, we randomly rolled the same mechanical background. So we're actually going to like figure out that we knew each other before and we've been hanging out and traveling together. Or our concepts complement each other. They're sort of almost the opposite. Like that happened in our first Dark Heresy game that Jim was running. Like Shane's character was uh, a psyker, an unsanctioned psyker. An unsanctioned psyker. And I wanted to play an untouchable, a blank who basically nets out. 
a psyker like the isalamiri do in uh star wars yeah so we basically decided wait a minute if we stand next to each other no one can track you yeah no one will know that i'm unsanctioned or a psyker maybe how about hey maybe we're related yeah (laughs) what if we're twin brothers (laughs) wait that won't work what if we're brothers (laughs) hey and yeah that ended up being our backstory which really couldn't have happened if we had each written our own backstories even if we had had brothers they would just have been npcs or maybe not even involved in the game at all right and it would have been much less interesting early on because much of the like tension that propelled the early parts of the game was us being like well here's what we have to do and we're like we're two-fifths of this group (laughs) yeah (laughs) so we've got a bit of clout right even though in the game like I'm a hated untouchable and you're a terrifying unsanctioned psyker. So rather than being either kicked out of the group or murdered on the spot, we are taken in and listened to. Yeah. I think the other thing that worked really cool with that specific concept is we knew a a lot about who our characters were today, Mm. but it gave us a chance to kind of define our families and, and define our past experiences together. Right. So it was like, Hey, what if we say this happened and that becomes relevant in the scene? And we could sort of agree to it in the moment instead of having to kind of define everything either together or separately or kind of work that in. Yeah, much easier than agreeing on the details of our lives as children beforehand and then like writing all that out. Yeah. But there are also some potential problems with a emergent background. Yeah, like some people will just never bother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, I can just show up with a concept? requiring less player buy-in or or engendering less player buy-in might yield less commitment Uh, it's definitely easier to walk away from a character who is yeah i'm a fighter i fight stuff i'm a dwarf i'm from a clan i lived underground that's my concept i got an axe (laughs) what's the name of the clan Uh, uh. i don't know what's my last name roll it on the table for me (laughs) emergent background (laughs) yeah (laughs) also this is kind of ideal for a power gaming munchkin. Uh, yeah, it can definitely be problematic for some player profiles. Yeah, actually, it turns out my family is the it's the same as uh, the ruling family. Yeah, uh, of this town we just came to. That's actually that's my background. That's my name. I didn't even know that, that family ruled this town. That's amazing. I'm part of them. <laughs> Here, I have my signet ring. I had it on my character sheet. It said signet ring. Here, let me just. I didn't spend the gold, so I'm just going to spend the gold and say signet <laughs> ring is background. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so don't let gray area in someone's backstory invalidate the challenge of an encounter. You know, it, it shouldn't be a get-out-of-jail-free card. I know what to do here because my uncle was a courtier. Sure, yeah, I'm sure he was. He was also executed for treason yeah, about yeah. three years ago. Like, emergent backgrounds, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and not just the munchkin or power gamer, but also, you know, casual gamers could be a problem here. They just might never bother writing it, less for laziness purposes and and more for perhaps not fully understanding it as a casual gamer. Mm -hmm. As a GM, you've also got fewer built-in hooks in a character that you can pull in to plan your campaign. You know, those might emerge later, but you haven't had them when you were planning, and they actually might end up contradicting what you had planned. Yeah, and that's a good indicator for gms as well it's always good to look at character backgrounds to see where players want their game to go you know when they tell you about who their character is they're they're telling you something about the game they want to play 
you don't necessarily have that to draw on at the beginning if you've got just a bunch of concepts but no real details. Yeah, definitely. At the beginning of the Morning Glory campaign, the backgrounds I got were Seer and Refugee. Okay, so the Day of Mourning and Seer is going to play in this somehow. A uh, member of a dragon-marked house. Okay, great. I'm gonna, definitely going to involve the houses. Creepy Aberrant Warlock. Oh, okay, hold on. Wait, <laughs> I'm going to work this in somehow, <laughs> <Yep>. too. <laughs> Warforged. All right. Huh. This is getting interesting. But if I hadn't had all of that information, it would have been much, much harder to sort of narrow down what was the focus of this campaign going to be. You know, I could have been like, oh, well, you know, it's going to take place in Sarlona. But then if these backgrounds had emerged later, they just wouldn't have been applicable. Yeah. And actually, I might have had to be like, oh, it's not really going to work for this. Let's finesse it somehow. Yeah. So let's expand upon that then. So what are some ways to make the PC backgrounds relevant in the campaign? Well, if you're a player, be nice to your GM. Put some hooks in your background that they can use to tie your PC into the story and that other players can use to tie themselves to your PC. And then I'll just throw on, like, and then follow them. (laughs) When the hook gets tugged, follow it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, super helpful there, right? I I think this is like, keep it simple stupid right is just give hooks to latch onto Mm -hmm. it's as simple as that and and whatever it takes to do that is basically what we're going to do so we'll talk about a couple different ways to create those hooks and as a gm when you attempt to set up one of those plot hooks and start tugging on it and trying to get the player's attention if they're not interested i think it's good to let it go if they're not noticing i think you have to lampshade it yeah you know like hey don't you have something in your background about this? Oh, oh, that's for me. Oh, guys, we got to do this. <laughs> I'm suddenly very interested and invested. <laughs> yeah, like I, I got to go talk to this guy for reasons. It'll be fine. <laughs> Forgot I'm addicted to spice. Right. Oops. <laughs> so for me, one of the techniques that I like to use uh, when I start writing down my backstory is to give a Mad Lib to my GM, just a bunch of fill in the blank type sentences so i know the direction of it but i'm asking him or her for the details so usually that's you know proper nouns so like the name of a nation or the name of a city um, a rival family a ship or maybe the year that something has happened yeah we did this when we were working on brand's backstory when we were introducing him in a campaign that players were already at seventh level you know you knew you wanted to play an inquisitor from Thrain, uh, you knew that he had fought in the last war um, and that you were chasing another Inquisitor. But, you know, you wrote out this pretty extensive backstory, but you're asking me, okay, who am I chasing? Right? Because it doesn't matter who you tell me, someone who already exists in the game, maybe. Right. Uh, where was this battle? What was the atrocity? Things like that. Yeah. And, and like, who do I work for right now? Yeah, exactly. Who, who do I report to? <laughs> another tricky one can be motivations. So if you, uh, you know, if you've got conflict in your background, either leave it as a mystery as to why you were fighting or let the GM sort of explain why you were fighting, especially if the conflict is much bigger than a personal conflict, right? Um, if you had, if your clans have been at war, for example, it's great to let the, the GM tie that in because I'm, I'm certain that conflict can become relevant today. From the very beginning, even if you don't have a lot of concrete information about your character, you're going to want to create a reason that they will be in this party and that they will stay in this party. 
Otherwise, why are they going through all the trouble of almost dying on a daily basis? Yeah. Hanging out with these people who, like, they don't know because you didn't write them in your backstory. Right. Yeah, and, and likewise, like, okay, cool. So we're level three. We finished our, like, introductory dungeon crawl. Now what do we do? I don't know, man. I'm just going to go home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I got stuff in my backstory I'm going to take care of. So, like, I'm out. Probably at some point we've all dealt with that character who's been like, I don't know, maybe I'll just, like, open up a shop here in this town. Well, I, I actually had that problem in the Morning Glory campaign. Because mm, at one point, Bran was like, uh, I don't see how this relates to Nistrum Shadar. And that's like, that's who I'm actually after here. So what do I do here? Yeah. And you had multiple motivations. And I had to be like, just let it ride. Just trust it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just suspend disbelief for like one more session. <laughs> but if you do find yourself in a situation where it's like, well, I think my character, like what, what they would do is like settle down and open a store. Well, okay, either retire the character and get a character that actually wants to go adventuring. Right. Or give your character a reason to not do that. Like, yeah. it's your responsibility as the player. Yeah, and this is where, like, secondary and tertiary motivations become great. Like, bonds to other characters are often enough to continue down that path. So if you swear an oath to somebody in the party, uh, like the Wookiee life debt, for example, great, you had a motivation, you fix your primary thing, and now you're on to the next. Or... Maybe that's a bit extreme for PCs, but stuff like brothers at arms. And I, I signed on to, to help him, and I'm going to help him until he finds his lost brother. That ended up being for a little while a motivation for Brand, right? It was, oh, Kallik is a veteran of the war. He fought on the opposite side, actually, but both of you had similar outlooks. And so like for a while, you guys were doing like the paladin bro fist bump. Yeah, yeah. we had a love-hate relationship. <laughs> Hate, love, hate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then love at the very end. Yeah. We both prove yeah. true. It's the problem you get with, unfortunately, some character classes. You know, lots of games have a bounty hunter or mercenary class. And so it's already built into the game that you're chasing a particular bounty or some sort of fugitive. And if the party is finding itself moving in a direction away from that fugitive, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like, like it's fine if you're all bounty hunters or you're all mercenaries, but it's a problem when you've got one of them in the group and you're trying to chase this, this one quarry and what happens when you find it? Now what? Right, yeah. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. You know, catch them, it's over. Now what do you do? Or be dragged away from the hunt. What do you do? Right. So, like you said, one of the best things to do to keep your character invested in the party is to network them with other characters. Maybe this happens at the beginning, but you can easily thread this throughout as you're playing a long-term campaign. You know, like 10 levels in when your characters have literally saved each other from death, I don't know, a half dozen times, why would they not have developed some sort of bond? Right. D&D doesn't really do this very well, naturally. Like, it, it has the bond stat you know it's a it's a it's a blank spot on the character sheet mm -hmm. but they tend to be very general and not very specific to a, a campaign or to a an individual in the party so like other games just do it better like and i'm thinking dungeon world specifically is really really good about this mm -hmm. fiasco the whole setup of the game the only thing you define about your characters is their bonds to other characters right that's that's all you set up so i i think 
even if there's not a mechanical reason for setting that up, I think that's critical to kind of create those connections to other PCs because that ultimately is going to encourage role play between characters. And as a GM, like the best thing you see at the table is, is an argument between two or three players in character. Yeah. Right. Like that lasts most of the session. Yeah. <laughs> Cause one, you get all your plot hooks from it. <laughs> and two, it's just so like rewarding to see people so invested in their game that they're not even breaking character when they're trying to make decisions. And I also, as a player love coming out of those arguments going, what was it that I felt like my character needed to stand for? You know, what was it that was important to them and what were they arguing about? Oh, wow. Like that, that is sort of the pinnacle of the emergent background. It's in game. This is what became important to my character. And so now I can put this on the sheet, you know, like when it came down to it, this character absolutely refused to like slaughter innocence for any reason, even for the greater good. All right. That's good to know. I could have written that down at the beginning. I don't know that I necessarily would have come up with that on my own. Right. Yeah, I mean, even going to the end of Morning Glory, we learned a lot about our characters in our epilogue, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we learned that Calic and Brand were unable to forgive Bastion for betraying all of existence. Whereas Emery stuck to her guns of being a kind and good and gentle person. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe he can be redeemed. <laughs> which, obviously, I don't agree with, which is why I incessantly mock, but... It's also why Bran didn't have the power to destroy ultimate evil at the end. Is it? No, that's not canon. That just was a wrong class. <laughs> <laughs> that's just me twisting the knife. That's all. Right. <laughs> I, I think we needed friendship. I think that was the... Yeah, the power of heart. Right. <laughs> was it... Not Mowgli. What was his name? <laughs> Mati. Mati. <laughs> I do want to add that having a background that makes sense for a character offers plot hooks for your GM and that's great and it binds the characters together in a way that makes sense in the story but above the table it also ties the players together you know it makes them more invested in this particular story but it also makes them more invested in the group as a whole like this individual group of people who like took time out of their week got together in person or online and is like actually interacting in a, a real way. I think it does make it easier to maintain a long-term group when yeah. you have people who are, you know, willing to bring realistic, fully fleshed out characters to the table. That's true. I also think in addition to that, it starts to lower that resistance to exposing yourself uh, as a role player, right? Because because you're kind of vulnerable when you're role playing, mm. um, and especially if you're playing with strangers or people that you've never played with before, even if you know them well, right? Um, a lot of people don't want to let their guard down, and mm -hmm. so I think writing a backstory and and discussing it and talking about it and creating it kind of exposes a little bit of your creative side in a safe way that can really help jumpstart the role play. I'm so excited to LARP at your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, you'll be well-dressed for the vampire LARP. <laughs> Do you hear that, Ishan? That's just me writing down my quips for later, because I'm not good on the fly. All right, well, let's go build that character then in the Character Creation Forge. 
But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Forge, we are building the Chevalier. Shane, I don't speak French. What is that? Uh, it's a it's the root word of chivalry. Ah, so it's a it's a chivalrous knight of the realm. It's Lancelot. Yeah, I mean historically, it's like a rank within some orders of knights in like France and Belgium or something. But yeah, I mean basically, think of Lancelot or Galahad. Those are your chevalier. So what is the build? It's a pretty simple one this time. It's Purple Dragon Knight Fighter, 13, Order of the Crown Paladin, 7. This is the first time that I think we have put these two classes together. Because we actually don't use either of them that often. No. Because in general, they're kind of lackluster. Yeah. And I mean, this is still not going to be the most powerful build, but I think it gives you some interesting options. Yeah. And I think it is the most warlordy and gets the most mileage out of charisma of this kind of like heavy armor melee fighter yeah so you got 13 levels of fighter so that's going to get you all of the basics for fighter second wind lets you regain some hp action surge lets you take another action indomitable lets you re-roll a failed save uh you'll also get three attacks because you hit the level 11 threshold Uh, But what's cool is Purple Dragon Knight. You'll get expertise in persuasion and gain proficiency in a charisma skill. But you'll also gain the ability to share your second wind with your allies or share your indomitable ability, uh, the the re-roll, with an ally as well. So you become very party-friendly, and that sort of fits that chivalrous, you know, kind of uh, protect those who need to be protected, sort of... uh, Lead from the front. Exactly. Yeah. And then the Order of the Crown Paladin kind of doubles down on that with some of its abilities. So you get channel divinities that allow you to tank. You can basically restrict movement of uh, creatures from moving more than 30 feet from you. And you can also get a, a, a light group heal. You also get the Divine Allegiance ability, which lets you take the damage in place of an ally uh, who's within five feet of you as a reaction. And then you get spells um, from your Order of the Crown, like Warding Bond and Zone of Truth, which, again, kind of double down on that not telling lies, not suffering a lie. And then also Warding Bond is just straight up bodyguard ability, right? Yeah, it pairs so well with Divine Allegiance in a Warding Bond. And I, I love the idea of sort of like wading through combat and like normally you're the toughest person on the field and like your allies who are surrounding you are being felled left and right. But actually... The blows, for some reason, just don't seem to hurt them as much. Yeah. You know, and maybe that's just because they're so inspired by you. Right. Maybe somehow magically you're taking the damage yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then because you're a paladin, you get smite, so you get a little boost to your damage. You get lay on hands at a decent amount because you're level seven. And then you also will get the aura, which gives a bonus to saving throws to your allies within 10 feet. And of course, as a paladin, you're also going to get fine steed. So you can make your horse yourself. Oh yeah, you will be a mounted knight. You will. So it turns out, a uh, little etymology here, uh, chevalier is also the root word of cavalier. 
So you could be both cavalier and chevalier in one fell swoop because fine steed. A chivalrous yet cavalier cavalier? Yeah, you could be. Hey, look, (laughs) why don't you tell me about your backstory? (laughs) All right, I think you're going to hate me for this. Well, more than you already do. Okay. And it's going to date me. No one would date you. (laughs) Fair. Do you remember that dispatch song... The general. The general. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why did you even have to name the song? Do you remember the, it's, only, it's dispatch the only dispatch song you've heard yeah, of? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, Heart of Gold. I heard. Yeah. So those of you who don't know the song, it's it's a general who like arrays his troops for battle, and then actually instead of giving them a pep talk and sending them out to fight, he says, actually. I went to go look at the other army and I saw them as human beings. And so I'm actually dismissing all of you. Go home. Yeah, just go. Just, yeah. just Don't go. fight anymore. I'm still going to go fight this battle alone. Because that's my job. Right. I have to do that. I can't dismiss myself. You all go home. Right. And so the backstory for this character for me is this general when, when he's younger. Because, you know, at level one, you can't like have the guy who's like old and retired. And he's yeah. like, all of you get out of here. You know? <laughs> right. But you can tell that this is someone who always put the welfare of his troops ahead of his own welfare, but at the same time was also extremely uh, adherent to his own duty, you know? So this, for me, presents a character who always has this internal struggle with, here's what I know that I'm supposed to do because it is very spelled out, uh, but here's what I believe is the good and just and right thing to do. And while that is, in some ways, the central conceit of the paladin, right, lawful and good, Mm -hmm. uh, this throws on top of it military duty and service. Oh, okay. So ran away to join the military very young. My guess is started as a drummer boy, you know, came all the way up through the ranks because this is their life, right? The general in the song is not worried about what, like, people back home are thinking like he's going to walk alone into a battle and obviously die Mm -hmm. his concern is troops and duty i think you're going to start off maybe even as like a not lawful stupid but lawful annoying paladin who's just a little too rigid and i think very early on level one level two something's going to happen you're going to adhere to your duty and it's all going to go wrong you'll kill the wrong person or Oh, here's what here's what I like. You start out as uh, vengeance or devotion, some other order, fall, and then the redemption. You become order of the crown. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a good arc. That's one I would totally buy as a GM too, because like, man, you were trading down by taking order of the crown. <laughs> <laughs> Plus purple dragon knight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. I made you take fighter instead of paladin, and like. You're keeping the fighter? <laughs> All right. And you're not going Battlemaster? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd like the investment. This is good. So I, I like that character as sort of the philosophically conflicted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would take a different type of conflict, a little more internal. Uh, my Chevalier is a coward. Oh, wait, like the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I'm not that old. Sorry. <laughs> I remember Dispatch, but that's that's a bridge too far. So he is bound by duty, right? He's mm-hmm. a purple dragon knight, which means something. He's a member of the Order of the Crown, which is an actual order, right? He serves a lord in a in a specific way. And so he's bound by duty to perform, uh, but he is terrified of it, right? He's, he's terrified of 
battle. He is he struggles with that, mm. uh, and and part of it is that he he struggles with the responsibility that he could lead others into battle to their own harm, and so he takes all of that upon himself. Uh, that's why he uses his divine allegiance to take that damage. It's mm-hmm. why he uh, shares his abilities as a purple dragon knight with those around him. It's it's because he is terrified of of harm to himself, but even more of harm to his allies. Mm. Yeah, I think when playing this kind of character, it's important to remember that these stories that it's based on, you know, the Mort Arthur, it, it's all about noble self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And honestly, these characters are kind of emo. Yeah, this is super edgelord. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, I'm in shining armor, but I just, I don't know how I feel about battle and combat and like, what is the purpose of all this? But I must do it because it is my duty. Oh, yeah, I built an exalted character. <laughs> Make no mistake. We're gonna talk about this. <laughs> I won't kill you yet. You need to monologue. Right. <laughs> and then after I kill you, I need to monologue with my friends. <laughs> All right. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And this week, our uh, last five-star review before we are caught up, and if we have not read your review yet, uh, send us an email at totalpartythrill at gmail.com, so we will. Uh, But as far as I can tell, this is our last email to catch us up. This is an instant favorite, five stars, by Kermavexis. Had Shane as a DM at a catacon and decided to ask him about TPT after our game. Glad I did. I've binge listened to 50 plus episodes over the past month and a half. Ishan and Shane are super knowledgeable on 5e rules and have given me a ton to think about as a DM and player. The Character Creation Forge has given me a lot of ideas for character concepts. Plus, Morning Glory campaign recaps keep me coming back for just one more episode. Sweet. I love to hear that. I'm sorry you had Shane as a GM, but, you know, you can't win everything. It looks. Was it Reckon is Racing? Is that what you made them play? No, no, no. I think that would have been our low fantasy D&D game. Oh, the one where you started them at one hit point. Mm-hmm. I'm one, so sorry. One hit die. <laughs> of hit points. One randomly rolled hit die. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Nice. You live, you learn. <laughs> you die, you learn. You learn, yeah. You laugh, you, you, you learn. You choke, you learn. <laughs> uh, you lose, you learn. Oh, you bleed. Bleed? That oh, one's bleed. good too. Yeah, that one. Yeah. All right. Alanis gets us. Yeah, every time, man. So, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about riddles. And in the character creation forge, we're building the cage match. Well, that's it for episode 79 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Planeteers, way worse than Voltron. <laughs> I actually had considered the putting you guys in some sort of weird mech for like the final battle. Yeah, that's it's always tough to figure out what to do with individuals in a in a gestalt. All right, that's going to be another episode at some point yeah, in the future. Yeah. yeah, and then we're going to write our own game about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually Your five NASCARs, <laughs> <laughs> twenty wheels, zero. Yeah. <laughs> Reckon is robot. <laughs> Advanced military robotics is racing. <laughs>
All right. There's your vamp or your cold open. (laughs) Boom.